Spread number love all across the globe. It's the Vibe Show. I'm your host, Kano the Don, the Vibe King. And tonight, we have a special guest joining us on the show today. I'm talking about the one and only, Mr. Donnie Rose. Mr. Rose, how you doing tonight? What's up, Brother Kano? How are you? Man, I'm doing absolutely fabulous, man. Look, before we even get started, I just want to just... Spread my gratitude and thank you so much, man, for allowing us this opportunity for me and my team, man, to get a little bit of your time. Hold up, man. Thank y'all for reaching out. Absolutely, man. I tell you, um, you wear, uh, you, <laughs> you're really a man that wears a lot of hats, my brother. Yeah, well, I got a receding hairline, so I got to be wearing a hat. <laughs> well, look, you ain't by yourself, man. We both got receding hairlines, so I, I, I just it took me a while to get get used to the bald head, man. But um, I think I think it's kind of set in now, man. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at with it. Look, um, now let's 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 start off from um, from BR, man. Like, um, you 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 originally from Baton Rouge? Yep. Born and raised. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um as far as opportunities in um in art in Louisiana, um like what 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 made you uh decide to go into that field of career? Well, I wanna say that the, the arts and the education was just a natural intersection for a couple of reasons. Primary reason is that my, my mother uh, was was a, was a teacher, was an educator, and I grew up um, in, in the rise of, of, of hip hop. And so, like um, my older brothers, you know, always were, were putting me on to you know newer rap music. And so I grew up just kind of having an appreciation for words and language right. and crafting my own. And so, like my earliest like creativity was me taking. Uh, popular rap songs or like rewriting my own version of it. So I tell the story back, you know, back in the day when uh, Snoop Dogg had the popular uh, song Murder with the Case that they gave me. Right. I like made a remix of mine. It was like Chicken with the Plate that they gave me. It was like a made up <laughs> rap about Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I did that like back when I was in middle school. Um, and so just like ever, you know, ever since like middle school and high school, I would be passing around composition books with my friends and ciphering and write rhymes and you know when I got to college at Southern uh, it kind of transformed into me being involved with spoken word and, and the poetry scene going to the campus open mic and then later to uh, poetry slams in the community and that morphed into me competing nationally and touring and traveling which then brought me back to my roots of teaching because you know as I said my mother was an educator so it was pretty much natural that I would ultimately get into like teaching the craft of poetry and that's been taking me all kinds of places. Right. Now, when it comes down to um, to art and um, opportunities in uh, Louisiana, do you feel like there's there's a lot of opportunities um, with dealing with art? I mean, it, it is primarily based on location. So let me first say this. In the literary arts, when you're talking about poetry, when you're talking about 
uh, being a novelist when he talks about playwriting, like literary arts are, are, are often a struggle, uh, particularly in the modern era for Louisiana artists. So right. you have folks, you know, um, like, you know, older folks from the older generation, like Ernest Gaines, who was like, you know, straight out of a small town in Louisiana that rose to prominence. But in the, um, in the modern era, the literary arts have been a struggle for a lot of Louisiana folks. Now, but it's also you also have to look at where you are in the state, right? Right. So New Orleans is a cultural hub, right? Right. So whether you're into literary arts, whether you're into music, whether you're into theater, whatever, you can find opportunity because, um, like when I was coming up in, in the spoken word game early on, particularly there was a point in New Orleans uh, before Hurricane Katrina where you could find a poetry reading every night of the week, like literally seven days a week. But in Baton Rouge, that was like maybe once a week, you know, um, when things were really popping and I also right. organized some old events, you might have got it twice a month. But, you know, there was always this level of, you know, starvation in Baton Rouge and a lot of other surrounding areas for the arts. Now, you know, but with, also, with that also being said, Baton Rouge has always had a mild appreciation for some more mainstream arts like the blues and ballet and that kind of stuff. Um, but the literary arts world, you definitely have to carve your own path around here. It's not necessarily a given. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I've done over the last, you know, at this point, 20 years, along with my comrades and colleagues and friends, has just been about carving out a path for ourselves in a city that didn't necessarily like to give us one. Right, right. Now, with with, with that being said, um, why do you why do you feel like it's not a lot of investing? Um, financially into the arts here um, as opposed to like your Atlantas or, or Cali's or, or Miami's. Um, you, yeah, there, there's a, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a myriad of answers to that. Um, and I don't have them all, but I can give you a few ideas. One is that, and I was doing some research on this not too long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, like years ago, Baton Rouge became a very industrialized city from what you know it is right now, right. back when uh, what is now known as ExxonMobil was Standard Oil. Right. It brought a lot of blue-collar, industrial-type uh, jobs to the city. And so with that, you know, you had a lot of folks in this area that were focused on, you know, get, getting the nails dirty and, you know, get to the grind and get to the grit. And it wasn't like a lot of space for art and culture. But also with that being said, there was also a period of time in the early 20th century where the Lincoln Theater in Old South Baton Rouge was home to like some of the most, uh, some of the biggest artists of the time would pass through the Lincoln Theater. Right. That, that didn't sustain itself. And so one, one of the issues is that throughout the course of, you know, arts and cultural history in Baton Rouge, there has been a, a real struggle to sustain artistic spaces. So when you can't keep a venue open, when you can't keep an event series going, it's hard to make money off of it. It's right. hard to profit off of it because it's so cyclical. Whereas, like I said, in New Orleans, if you have a poetry night or a jazz night or a hip-hop night shut down within a week, there's going to be another one that, that springs up. Right. Because there's right. just a richer cultural appreciation. 
Right. And so, like, that that's the situation that we find ourselves a lot in Baton Rouge. You know, people gravitate to you when you have, like, really blown up or when you pop, right? Right. Whereas when you're talking about scenes like Atlanta, scenes like Houston, scenes like D.C., scenes like New York, Los Angeles, et cetera, they are cultivating artists along the way, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not a matter of you've blown up, so now we're going to invite you what you're about. It is folks, you know, who have been doing their thing and coming up, you know, within the city that they were in. Um, like a very good example of that, back in uh, back in the late 90s, there was a venue in Philadelphia called the Black Lily. And the Black Lily was essentially the, um, the, the breeding ground of what became known as the neo-soul movement. Yeah. So everyone, everyone passed through there. Whether you talk to Jill Scott, whether you talk to Roots, um, Eric Badu, who was not from there, most deaf, quality, like some of the more conscious and neo-soul-oriented artists all passed through that space. So what that meant was there was a place in Philadelphia, and I use that as an example because there's been several other examples in other cities. Right. There was a specific place that cultivated emerging talent, you know what I mean? And it and it, it, it didn't wait for those people to be superstars or celebrities, right? Right. It, it, create, it, it, it gave a platform for them to emerge throughout. And, you know, there, there's been places like that in the South, particularly in Houston and also in New Orleans. Like, some of the biggest acts in, like, present-day music or emerging acts in present-day music or people who I know personally, like mm. Tank, uh, Tariana Ball from Tank and the Bangers. I've known her for like 12 years. Right. Um, D1, um, I was like a somewhat of a mentor to him, right? These are two artists on a national platform at this point that were able to cultivate their careers through New Orleans, right? Exactly. There was always a platform on Avenue, which, you know, just hadn't always been, that's not always, always has been the case in Baton Rouge. Do you think that um, that 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 ties into um, because I notice now that it's starting to um, affect some of the other businesses and stuff downtown, the entertainment businesses downtown, too. I seen something on the news the other day where um, some of these little bars and stuff like that, um, they're being affected to now to the point to where now they want to merge together to try to um bring more more to to the downtown area and try to um mix it in to um to expand and, and keep it going because a lot of those businesses are going out of uh going out of business as well but he was saying that he feel like instead of competing with um one another as far as providing facilities for people to um, that's in the art to perform and stuff like that or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that um, that's a factual thing that that you know now that it's impacting um, these other um, situations as well? Well, I think that there's a couple of things to look at that from 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 that standpoint, and if I can be very candid and honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's all I want. What, what a lot of this has to do with is there was a point in time where um, white venue owners in downtown wanted black culture, but not necessarily black people. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. But they wanted like the hip-hop nights, and they wanted 
you know, a certain aesthetic but was not necessarily interested in the people that came with it. And a large part of that population consisted of black artists, right? right? right. So if I was at a venue, and, and like I said, I used to organize events um, for the better part of, like, my adult, initial part of my adult life, right? Right. And one thing that I remember very early on in the early to mid-2000s was I would go to a venue, we would have, you know, I would promote, like, poetry and live music events, right? I go to a venue, we'd have a successful night, and then the owner or maybe a regular at the place would hear something that a poet may say that may not necessarily be the most um, friendly to, you know, the situation of racism, and then they would complain. Right, right. And so the next thing you know, I have an owner saying, well, you know, we're switching up this night, or we can't do this anymore. And, and, and for a long time, I was getting just kind of a bunch of excuses as to why something as non-threatening as a poetry night had to be canceled. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something as, you know, non-threatening as a conscious hip-hop night, why did it have to be canceled? And so what I came to the realization was there were certain things that were being, you know, expressed in the art form that folks just weren't comfortable with, like owners were not comfortable with, mm. right? Um, and also, you know, they may have said, well, if I have a, a young white college crowd and you're drinking, I can possibly profit more off of the off of the liquor and not have to listen to uncomfortable truths. <laughs> so, you okay. know, y'all can bounce. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think that, you know, what, what we have seen, particularly over the last few years, because there's been a couple of interesting developments that have taken place. Um, some of these owners have shown their hand for uh -huh. what they really are. Right. And a lot of their black patrons have decided we're not going down here anymore. Right. right? There you go. Right. And so, and so when that takes place, then you have to ask yourself, what may bring people back? Mm. What is something that we historically, and when I say we, I'm like speaking in, form, in terms of the owner. Right. So something that we have historically not done that may bring people back around. Oh, we historically have not given platforms to young black artists. Huh, but we'll okay. have this rap night. Right. But we'll have this, you know, R&B night. We'll have this whatever to try to capitalize off of something that we have historically locked out. Right. Now, let me ask okay. you this. Let me ask you this right there, not to cut you off. Now, yeah. now, now, being, I, I, I like what we got. I like the space that we in right now. Mm -hmm. Now, okay. Now, with that being said, um, now, with 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 everything that's going on now in the culture, um, and 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 we're not gonna necessarily say from our era. Let's 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 come up to the current era. With what's going on right now? Do you think yeah. that fear plays a part in allowing allowing these these allowances these alliances? I mean, to come into these establishments um, out of fear. Being that um, it may be a shooting, or or or, or you know, it, it may get. I, I don't want my establishment torn up. Um, I, I want to 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 make this step, but you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, or, or or do we have a mediator yeah. that comes in and 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 on behalf of uh, the culture to to yeah, make I, these deals work? Oh, yeah, I think that to be honest with you, 
you know, it, the, the 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 fear, so to speak, has always been something that has been with these owners, whether it was founded in actuality or not. Mm-hmm. So, what I mean by that is this: I remember probably 2007, there was an article in Business Report that referred to the side of Third Street as where Embal was on as the quote-unquote dark side of the street. Uh, like that was actually printed in business report that the side of Third Street where Embal was the dark side of the street. Now, if you know anything about the Embal era, what you know is that the majority of folks that were going there were young black professionals. Right, college people. Like that's what they were. You know what I mean? Exactly. College folks and folks, you know, that had, you know, White collar, blue collar yeah, jobs. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. It was a different environment. Three or four hundred dollars on a bar tab. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? That was the demographic. Uh, cats going in there in hard bottom shoes and collared shirts. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that whether the fear was founded by evidence or not, it was just always there. Ah. And so I remember moments where I would be standing outside the M bar, you know, with my homies during the let out. You know what I mean? And we're just standing around, and before you know it we would hear dogs barking. But it wasn't actual dogs. It was police car horns that they made to sound like barking dogs. Come on, man. And I also remember standing on the sidewalk on Third Street several nights with other young professional black people, and the next thing you know, we're coughing because pepper sprays everywhere. Come on, down. And so, regardless of if there was actual activity or not, that fear was always there, Mm. right? And so what I'm saying is, for the longest, what they wanted to do is say, you know, they knew that hip-hop music was the dominant music, you know, just in all musical genres. Right. So they wanted to be able to play that music in their establishment. They wanted the latest, you know, insert whatever hot rapper song in their establishment. What they were not necessarily so keen on was young black folks coming in there, you know, dressed, you know, in hip-hop attire or dressed casually or, you know, even, you know, being demanding with, with, with spending money at a bar. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, like, that, that fear, that fear was there when you had some of the most professional, upstanding, uh, non-criminal, young black folks possible going to these places. Absolutely. And they, they did everything that they could. A lot of these places did everything that they could as far as discriminatory uh, uh, dress codes, putting stuff out there that you knew that the intent was, it wasn't said that mm-hmm. they didn't want black folks, but it was very much implied. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's something, I mean, that's still a thing currently. You right. know what I mean? Right. And, 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 and the, the, the flip side of that is that a lot of us, you know, a lot of, a lot of black folks who were either club goers or artists or just whatever, were not always keen on going to some of our establishments because our establishments were not in the pretty side of town. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were in parts of town that felt, you know, crime-infested, that felt impoverished, that you thought that something might have popped off. You know right, what I mean? Right, And so right. it was a catch-22. And for artists in particular, if you can't perform at the hole in the wall because you're concerned, and if you can't perform at the downtown white establishment because they don't want you, then it's kind of a catch-22. What do you do at that point? Right. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I definitely feel you on that, yeah. man. That's, you know, and and it's 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 crazy 
um, because if, if you notice, a lot of the places that um, we do have that's pretty decent are in those um, those areas. Now, as far as um, let's let's just say uh, marketplace buildings, um, are they shutting us out in that regard as well by um, hiking the prices up on properties to where we can't um, move into those areas? Let's just say like um, over there by LSU, um, yeah. the, the areas where they're building up over in that area or whatever. Um, are they yeah. shutting us out? Over there, or are they not letting us buy property over there, or, or what's your theory on that? No, I think I think that they're, I think that price gouging is a real thing, and I think that it is relevant to who's doing the asking, mm. right? And so you got some folks out there, you know, that that open up establishments who may be the nephew of a developer, mm. or who may be the cousin of a contractor, who may be the son of you know, whatever property owner or, you know, the play fund of a property owner, right? Right. That looks different if I'm an LSU alum, if I'm an LSU graduate, if, if, if I'm a young white man, if, if there are connections, familial connections that allow me to buy property in that area versus if I'm an enterprising young black person looking to do the same thing, if I don't have the nepotism, if I don't have any type of familial ties, if I don't have any type of connection, then what I'm trying to do is going to be heavily questioned. Right. Like, I'll say this. The longest-running black establishment that's anywhere within the LSU area, and it's nowhere close, is Club Culture on Nicholson Drive. Um, Olu, uh, who's a Nigerian brother, has owned Club Culture for like 20-some-odd years. Yeah. And the main reason why club culture exists without issue is because it is positioned on Oklahoma Street. So technically, it's in South Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. right? Um, that is the closest black-owned establishment in proximity to LSU and has been for years. Right. So, you know, I think it is safe to say that when some of us look to go over in those areas to set up shop, or to or potentially buy a property, yeah, there's going to be a higher level of scrutiny. There's going to be a lot more questioning because, again, your culture is accepted, your business not so much. And so that's where, you know, the the the, 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 the difficulty comes in. Ah. Now let me ask you this. Um, why do you do you think, and, and, and I just want your perspective on it, um, why are we not seeing growth and um, building development up towards uh, Southern University as opposed to, um, I mean, that whole uh, area, scenic, um, you know, still abandoned buildings, establishments that could be purchased and built up to um, a, a, a nice development that would tie in and bring more, more, uh, uh, financial wealth into to that area in the university um why are we steadily seeing that decay and and we're steady seeing i mean growth over on the other side of town we have you know first of all we have to look at some of the political implications of that right Mm -hmm. so in the early to mid 2000s when uh kip holden was the mayor of Baton rouge 
he um, invested a lot of city resources into downtown development, right? right. And so um, he had a lot of close ties and connections with white business class and a lot of folks were developing in downtown. What you, what you often see a lot of times is these developers receiving city contracts and receiving grants and receiving, you know, municipal support financially to build. Absolutely. And you don't, and, and, and like, so when you're talking about um, lack of development in North Baton Rouge, it's not always just based on there not being a will to do so. It's often based on, you know, our, our contractors being, you know, offered the right amount of money to build over there or our store owners being able to get loans and, and, and grants, you know what I mean? Right. And, and, and apply for assistance uh, through economic development uh, plans via the city, right? Right. That has, not, that, that has not been a thing in North Baton Rouge for a very long time. So, like, for me, one of the places that I hang out regularly is Southern Grand Coast, um, right on Scotland Avenue. And, you know, uh, Horatio uh, Isidore, who owns it, uh, he, he sits on an island within around Blight, right? So right. Grand Coffey is an island within itself. It is surrounded by a blighted, torn-down property, but it has existed for the last year as a coffee shop and cafe right in the heart of Scotlandville, mm-hmm. right? In order for Southern Grand Coffey to be a thing, politically, it had to align at the right time. And so now you have a mayor of Baton Rouge in office that has some interest in, you know, investing into or trying to help minority businesses grow. Right. If you don't have, you know, that type of leadership, it's going to be difficult for the growth of minority businesses in economically desperate areas. Mm. Because, you know, if the banks are not going to give you loans, if you can't get approved for, for some federal grants, if the city is not going to give you, like, contracted money, then how do you develop? Right. You know? And and would you say the alumni um, plays a part in that as well, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Um, and, you know, we, we also have to be able to envision our parts of town as vibrant areas, right? Right. Um, when, I, when, when, I, when I first went to talk to Horatio, who owns Southern Grind, this was like about a year ago when he first opened. I was telling him about his place um, in Philadelphia called Uncle Bobby's, which is owned by uh, Mark Lamont Hill, a uh, well-known CNN political person where he's still on CNN. He hosts a TV show on, on BET, all or whatever. So, so Mark Lamont Hill owns a coffee shop called Uncle Bobby's in the heart of what's called Germantown in, in Philadelphia. Right. Now... The irony of it being Germantown is that it's a historically black neighborhood. Right. Like, Germantown is a neighborhood, nothing but black folks in Germantown. And so, when, the first time I visited Uncle Bobby's was about, uh, maybe about a year before Southern Ryan opened. And I remember going back and telling Horatio, like, man, Mark Lamar Hill, yes, he has celebrity and he has access, but he has been able to build a very dope coffee house cafe essentially in the hood, you know what I mean? Right. And from that, he's had all kinds of, like, famous folks, and I mean, this is by way of his own celebrity, come through and do book readings and do talks and whatnot, 
but it is in, a, in the heart of a historically black neighborhood. Now, Mark Lamont Hill had enough social capital and probably a decent enough income to where he could have built Uncle Bobby somewhere else. Mm-hmm. He chose to build it in Germantown. You know what I mean? Right. And what he's done with that is bring a rich, diverse collection of Philadelphians into a predominantly black neighborhood. And so similar to that, I've watched Horatio bring in folks from all different parts of Baton Rouge to Southern Grind. The same can be said for the family that owns vegan-friendly food off of Bennington Drive on Couch. Like, they see a diverse array of people come through, you know, to support their black-owned business. And so, you know, the reason why I use Southern Grind as the example and not necessarily vegan-friendly, because vegan-friendly is in... Uh, in, in, a, in a business district off College Drive, Southern Grind is in the heart of Scotland. But what Horatio has been able to do over the last year and some change is get people to suspend their fear of our anxieties to come to a coffee shop in Scotland. So any given day, you can see any type of person sitting in there having coffee, you know, eating, you know, sandwiches or smoothies or whatever. And so with that, you know, the point that I'm getting at here is that we have to, you know, in addition to us needing more support um, from the city and from, you know, banking institutions or whatnot, we also have to re- we also have to be able to imagine what our spaces can look like as vibrant spaces. And we can't be afraid of our people. Right. You know what I mean? Um, we cannot be afraid to set up shops in certain areas for fear, you know, of our own people. And, of course, crime is an issue. I'm not going to say that it's not. But a good bit of crime is based on, like, a lack of resources and based on desperation. So we're setting up shops in areas and we're employing people in the areas then we may not see crime in the same way because now we're filling a void. We're giving people an opportunity. Right. You know what I mean? And so, you know, on, on, on a larger level, again, there are systems at play that do not fund black businesses. Mm. But in addition to those systems, we also have to be like, you know what? I'm going to believe in the buying power of my people. I'm going to believe that I can be safe in this environment, and I'm going to set up shop here. Because buying power is real. You right. know what I mean? Black people collectively throughout the United States every year spend, I think, an annual amount of like maybe 10 plus like billion dollars. You know what I'm saying? Like the spending of black America is equal to like the, the, the growth national product of some smaller underdeveloped com- uh, countries. So we spend money. Right. But we have been wired to spend money with people that don't look like us. And a lot of that is based on, again, you know, fear of anxieties and, you know, the myths that we've told ourselves about the services that we receive from each other and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, you know, but... I've been I've been really really fortunate to watch over the last year, particularly the growth of Southern Grind Cafe, 
And I would also, you know, say, you know, the growth over the last few months of vegan friendly foods to black owned establishments on different sides of the town that have regular customers that have that have now believed in their businesses as successful businesses. Right. Now, let me ask you this, man. What keeps you so motivated and inspired to inspire others? I mean, I told, I don't know, like, I, I told myself a while back that if I was going to remain living in Baton Rouge, that I was going to make it the city I wanted it to be for myself. Right. And so, you know, folks have asked me, you know, on certain occasions, like, man, you know, why haven't you just moved or why haven't you just left? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of different answers to that question. I think that there were pockets of time when I was contemplating going somewhere else and things just didn't line up the way they, you know, the way maybe they needed to. Right. But I'm also, you know, but I also believe in destiny, right? And so if I was truly supposed to be somewhere else, I would be somewhere else. You know what I mean? Um, I think that I look at this city from a place of possibility. And I look at the city from a place of curiosity. And I know that a lot of other people look at the city from a place of curiosity of like, what could this be if we all were pushing to get what we needed to get out of it? Absolutely. Um, and, and so, like, you know, I know there's a lot of just foolishness that goes on in Baton Rouge all the time. But to a certain extent, I've learned to isolate myself from some of that or from a lot of that and work within the pockets and work with the people necessary to produce a different outcome. Mm. And so, like, I'm not oblivious to things going on around me. I'm just choosing to write a different narrative for where I'm at. I love that, my brother. I love that. If you could change something about the culture mentally in Baton Rouge, um, what would that be if you had that power? Um... I think that, you know, and, and, and beyond Baton Rouge, I think that a lot of, you know, southern states in general, we talk about, you know, slavery being something that was to ended, you know, 200 plus years ago, but there really still is a, um, a mentality of, of, of suppression and bondage for a, lot of, for a lot of black folks in southern states. And the thing that's interesting about that is that the largest concentration of black people reside in the Deep South. Uh Mississippi Mississippi has like a 38% black population. Louisiana has about a 36%. Alabama, Georgia, 34, 35%. These are the largest concentrations of black people in the U.S. You know what I mean? Uh Which, if you think about it, it makes sense. Because for every few of our ancestors that migrated north or migrated west or migrated, you know, wherever, the bulk of them stayed here. And so they raised families here. And those families produced generations. And so you just have a bunch of black people in these deep southern states. And so my thing is we can leverage the power of our numbers and the power of our intelligences and the power of our resources to not live with a foot on our neck. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Um, Because there's a difference between respecting others 
as human beings and respect you from one because you fear what they can do to you. Mm. Like, I'm, you know, I have a fair amount of white friends, for example, and our friendship is based on a place of, you know, we can speak candidly to each other and we can, like, both be about equality and equity, right? Right. I'm not minimizing my blackness for them. They're not minimizing themselves for me. That's, and that's kind of what it is. And so, you know, what, what, what I want, what I wish for our people is for us, you know, stand up, put our shoulders back, look our oppressors in the eye and tell them, like, yo, you cannot, you can't have me, you can't have my humanity, you can't have my family, you can't have my livelihood, you can't have any of that. Like, mm. none of that is for you. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I, I think that, you know, and I posted about this a few minutes ago online, there are so many things that we endure as a culture that are a byproduct of white supremacy. Right. And I said that black on black crime is a byproduct of white supremacy, and some people might be like, well, that's crazy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But who taught you initially to pit yourself against each other? Who taught you to hate yourself, right? Before you knew, you know, and when I say you, I mean, like, us culture. Right. Before we knew what it was to, like, truly be at odds with each other, we learned, we learned that, that that division primarily on plantations. Plantations, by the way, that still stand to this day. They just don't have people on them working. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, the, 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 the iconography of oppression is all around us. You can see Confederate statues all around you. You can see plantations all around you. You can see symbols of oppression all around you. And then you can see people treating you in an oppressive manner. And so, you know, my, my, you know, again, I guess getting back to your question, as far as the mentality switch, like, I want folks to know, like, look, you are, we are capable and, you know, creative, brilliant, and we can make of this place whatever we choose to make of it. You know what I mean? When people come to Louisiana, when people come to New Orleans, and, you know, get drunk on bourbon and indulge themselves in jazz and blues and whatnot. They are indulging themselves in African culture. Right. You know what I'm saying? New Orleans is like the most, one of the most authentically African cities in the U.S. based on its proximity to the port in which slaves were being brought in. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, we, like our culture in this area is so rich and other people are often the beneficiaries of that, which kind of goes back to what I was saying initially about the club situation. Right. Where you had owners that wanted that culture but didn't want those people. And so for me, the true mentality switch is you're going to have to embrace the whole of who I am. You know what I mean? If you want to indulge in what I have to offer culturally, you have to take me. Hmm. And if you're not willing to take me, you need to leave my culture at the door. Wow, you know what? And I like that because, and and that would truly, uh, that would truly break it. That would truly break it at that point because you you, you can't have 
you, you can't have one without the other. You can't yeah. you can't I mean, straddle. You know, yeah, I, I have a T-shirt that says "Love Black People Like You Love Black Culture," which um, ironically I found out other people are copying or selling it at different parts of the internet. And so while um, I had to stop a, a business from I just shut this situation down another day, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, I mean, we you know, and that 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 is not something that is just exclusive to Louisiana. Like all around, all over America, there are people borrowing from the culture of black people mm-hmm. without respecting black lives. This is, you know, this is the whole impetus behind Black Lives Matter, right? Right. This idea of valuing my life in the same way you value my music, the same way you value the way I dress, the same way you value my slang, mm. the same way you value the food I cook. I value my personhood in the same manner. Mm. And, you know, we ain't going to have these issues. Man, that's heavy. That's heavy. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I imagine that somewhere a cop that may have killed a young black man also may have Jay-Z in his playlist, may have Biggie in his playlist, may have Outkast in his playlist. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, the idea of the cross-burning hooded Klansmen as police officers, yeah, that, that's real. There are those who belong to, like, white supremacist organizations that own police forces, but there are also just everyday white boys that are police officers that indulge in black culture but do not have, you know, the respect for black humanity. That's how things play out. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and, and so, you know, like, yeah, when, when I think about switching up mentality or mentality switch, I'm like, look, have people embrace you as your whole self. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, your whole personhood. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm speaking specifically about black folks now, but I mean, just kind of across the board, like, no matter what your identity is, particularly if, if it is one that is marginalized, like let people accept you in the fullness of who you are. Right. You know what I mean? Um, I've, spent, I've spent many years mentoring young people, particularly youth poets, many of them, you know, queer young people. And I've told them all along, like, look, you let, you be your whole self. You make everybody else catch up to you. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, I had to unlearn some of my own homophobia by way of working with young people who were queer young people. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And them standing up in the fullness of themselves made me reevaluate my perspective. Mm. And so, you know, like, yeah, like Louisiana and the Deep South is typically ran by a very small percentage of, you know, um, good old boy type white men. But when you talk about these cities and when you talk about these these, these towns, like you have black folks, you have Latino folk, you have Asian folk, you have Muslim folk, you have immigrant folk, you have queer folk, you have all kinds of people in these, these cities and towns in the deep south. 
Right. Um, and so if everyone is standing in the fullness of themselves, what can what can white supremacy actually do to any of us? Huh. You know what I'm saying? That is so maybe true. I say, what can it do that it has not already done? Right. What's new? Right. You know what I mean, um, and so yeah, I, I, you know, my thing is, I'll be, I, I always try to tell young people who I, who I work with, like, man, exist in the fullness of yourself. Don't apologize for it. You know what I mean? I mean, be, be, be respectful, be empathetic, be kind, but don't apologize for who you are. And um, yeah, that, that's 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 a, a huge mentality shift that I would like to see people in this area, you know, just embody, like, exist in the fullness of yourself. Let other people figure it out. What could we, um, what could we look forward to in the future from you, man? Um, well, in the immediate future, I'm working on a project called the American Audit, which is a multimedia spoken word project where I'm using the metaphor of America as a business being audited by black people 400 years from the first slave settlement in Jamestown, Virginia. So, as you know, 2019 is the 400th year anniversary from the first slaves that settled in Virginia um, in the transatlantic slave trade. So I'm working on this longer piece, which compares, you know, America as a business being audited by black people, you know. And so when a business goes through an audit, they're going through all their records and they're checking out all the stuff that they've done as a business to determine if that business needs to be shut down, mm. right? And so the metaphor within that is that black people came to America initially as a financial investment. Right. You know, we were here to produce labor um, and to build to build a nation and to be unpaid labor. You know what I mean? And so if the property then got its rights and became people, what would those people do? If it was auditing the business, which is the country that brought it here. Right. And so that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and that's me writing, that's me interviewing folks, that's me um, doing museum visits. Uh, so I'm just kind of collecting a lot of that information. And ideally, I'll be done with that project in December. So I want to be able to put up performances of it before the year ends. But it's going to probably carry into 2020. So that's the most immediate thing that I'm working on. Aside from that, you know, I um I'm out here just, you know, doing my thing. I'm working with a couple of different organizations, doing contractor work. Um I'm uh, occasionally pulling up at shows and events around town. Not always getting on the mic as much anymore, but definitely going out and supporting. But I think that, you know, one of the key things that folks could always look for from me is the promotion of culture. Right. For things that are going on around town that are culturally relevant, like I'm going to be a founding board for it. I'll tell you what it is. You know right. what I'm saying? I, I'll, I'll, I'll give as much light to people who I think deserve light that does not often get it. You know what I mean? Like for me, I'm... I started like I started performing poetry in BR 20 years ago, 
And during that time, I've, I've touched every stage that I want to touch in town. I have, I've rocked out with, you know, big name folks. I've produced events that have put hundreds of people in, in doors. Like I, I've been VIP, I've done all this, all this stuff, right? So at this point, my main focus is how do I contribute giving back to the culture of the city? Because for all of the faults that Baton Rouge may have, I've been able to build myself right where I am. Hmm. You know what I mean? And this, this, this city has, pockets of this city have given a lot to me. Right. So what, what life looks like now is me figuring out how can I create platforms and avenues and situations that benefit myself and benefit, you know, the folks around me? You know, who are, who are the next generation of young creatives and artists and advocates? Like, who are they? I mean, I kind of know who some of them are, but just kind of like, you know, rhetorically speaking, right. who are they? And what, what spaces can I help provide for them? And I'm in the business of getting out the way. Like tonight, there is a um, there's a weekly one, a bi-weekly poetry open mic called Eclectic Truth. It's happening tonight. I used to be a main organizer of Eclectic for years. Two years ago, I stepped away, and the reason I stepped away was because there was a younger collective of more energized organizers. Yeah, and I was like, y'all got it. Like I'm gonna pull up now. When I go now, I just give them my five-hour cover charge. <laughs> right. And, and, like, to be honest, if I wanted to, like, walk in, like, yo, I mean, come on, y'all gonna really charge? Like, they would, you know, for the most part, they would let, they would let me in, right? Right. Because of, because, because of, of, of legacy, because of all this kind of stuff. But for me, it's not about that. It's about if you all are currently carrying on tradition and producing something of quality, if I can afford to come and support you, I've had my time in that light. Right. You know what I mean? Here, here, here's the support. You know what I mean? I have a I have a greater investment in this continuing than I do flexing my ego. And, you know, so yeah, you know, I, I want the folks who are in, the, in their early 20s and late teens and people who are coming up in town right now to have a better experience than I had as far as being a creative or as far as being a, you know, a culture bearer. And I want these folks, these young creatives and artists and thinkers and, and advocates and activists to have, you know, have more at their disposal. Right. You know what I'm saying? And if they have to fight, which they will always have to fight, I want that fight to look different than mine. You know uh, what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't want the next generation to be having the same venue battles that I had. Right. In 2003. You know what I'm saying? Like, that shouldn't look the same. Absolutely. Or I don't want, you know, these young artists having to take these nickel and dime honorariums like I did. Because we created, a, you know, a different, a, a different ecosystem, a different platform, a different lane. So now you shouldn't have to do that the same way. Right, man. I definitely, um, I definitely have enjoyed myself, man. I have learned so much. You definitely got to come back on this platform, man. Definitely. Yeah. 
And um, mm. can we yeah, can we put your social platforms out there in different ways that people can connect yeah. with you and ways that they could um they could go they they could listen or, or go read some of your work online or or yeah, even yeah. see some of it in person. Yeah, so let me give you some of the information. So my website is Donnie and it's spelled D O N N E Y Rose R O S E Poetry dot com. So it's all one thing, Donnie Rose Poetry dot com. Um, there's video content there, there's written content, there's uh, media, there's all this stuff there. Um, I'm on Instagram at Donnie D O N N E Y underscore Rose R O S E. I'm on Twitter at DRose225. It's important that you put the 225 behind there because I've had some people confuse me with Derrick Rose. Once upon a time, somebody got on Twitter, thought that they were tweeting Derrick Rose. It was a funny situation. They weren't. Um, I'm on Twitter at DRose225. Um, I'm on Facebook at Donnie Rose. Um, so, yeah, those are the main places where I can be found. And, um, if, if I'm doing something in the area, I definitely post that. Unfortunately, over the next couple of months, I don't have any, as of now, I don't have any performances in Baton Rouge. Um, but, you know, um, I occasionally pull up and pop up the places, so I can be found. Absolutely. Man, again, I appreciate you, my brother, wishing you more blessings and more success. Always, but, and you got to come back on this platform, my brother, so we can get it in again. Now we'll, we'll we'll wrap some more. Definitely, I appreciate y'all. Absolutely, it's the Vibe Show with your host Kano the Don. That's me and my special guest, the one and only King Donnie Rose. We out. Peace.